This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today... Donald Trump's visit to India. While in Delhi, protests against a new citizenship law lead to some of the worst violence in decades. My guests Kapil Komaredi and Michael Binion will discuss that and the day's other news, including UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's promise to overhaul Britain's approach to foreign policy and why Hong Kong is giving a substantial cash gift to all its residents. And staying in the city-state... Yes, everyone's taking sensible precautions, but the economy has not shut down and there are always fresh opportunities just around the corner for those who take panicky headlines with a pinch of salt and ignore the latest internet rumours about condoms and coffins running out. Our Hong Kong Bureau's view on why life and economy must go on, despite the coronavirus outbreak having brought much of the city to a standstill. I'm Georgina Godwin. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Michael Binion, a foreign affairs specialist at The Times, and Kapil Komaredi, who is the author of Malevolent Republic, a short history of the new India. Let's begin in India. US President Donald Trump concluded his visit to the country last night. It was overshadowed by violent clashes over a new citizenship law that grants amnesty to illegal non-Muslim immigrants from certain Muslim-majority countries. So far, at least 23 people have died in clashes that began in Delhi on Sunday. The violence is said to be some of the worst the Indian capital has seen in decades. And yet... It was completely ignored by Trump while he was there, Kapil. Trump and the Prime Minister. Trump ignoring it is a different league uh, of problem. He's a visitor, but Prime Minister Modi, that's his country, that's his capital, that's where he works out of. And the carnage was unfolding about 10 miles from where he was hosting a lavish banquet for his guest. Uh, And overnight, there's been unspeakable violence. And I think the full horror of it will become apparent in the coming days. Some of it is too gruesome for description. And what happens when riots like this take place is it's not just human beings that die. It's the trust that is built up between communities over decades. Delhi, remember, was the centre of the partition of the subcontinent. It has suffered a lot and it has had riots in 1983 and 47. It has had repeated riots. And this time, it, it had taken a long time to build up trust between communities, and that's gone now. Mm-hmm. And that's the real tragedy of this. Absolutely. But as you say, Trump himself, also as a visitor, didn't engage. He did engage in a number of other things, and I'd quite like to look at, without ignoring the tragedy of what's going on mm. on the streets of Delhi, but let's have a look at what he achieved in his visit, which was barely 36 hours. I mean, there was a, an arms agreement, for instance. Well, this 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 visit this visit was really about appealing to Trump's vanity, and Modi spent about 10, 10 million rupees, and busted a hundred thousand people in the world's largest cricket stadium, uh, and put on a great North Korea style spectacle purely to appeal to Trump's narcissism, in the hope that Trump would be, become more pro-Indian in his approach. Um, but what Trump did is he he got a great deal out of India, as he said, to his uh, his press pool. He sold three billion worth of arms to India, arms which I'm not entirely sure India really needs at the moment. And he ended up offering to mediate in Kashmir, uh, which is a position so inimical to India's stated position that its mere statement is a repudiation of everything Modi has done to appeal to Trump's vanity. Yeah. So I don't think it, this trip has done anything to bolster Modi. Uh, there was no trade agreement, tellingly, Michael. 
No, they had been hoping that there would be one, and that was one of the uh, expected outcomes. But Trump simply made nice words and said he hoped there would be a trade agreement. Uh, it, that would, of course, have practical benefit for India. I mean, I don't think it would be a big deal, particularly for America, because uh, India is not a huge export market for America. But it would be a symbolic and important uh, thing if it comes about. But in Trump's present mood, uh, it's not easy to see whether he'll make the concessions needed to reach trade a trade agreement. All trade agreements are notoriously difficult to uh, negotiate and can take a long time. And this one obviously isn't ready yet. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's any hope of it coming quite soon, Kapil? I think that there's what has happened is that India, because it's a developing country, uh, was under a different uh, agreement, which which gives certain benefits to products coming from, it's called general uh, system of preferences, I believe. And Trump terminated that last year. And the two sides are now trying to work out a very difficult process by which India is termed a developed country in America and yet receives some benefits. I loved what you were saying about uh, the the, uh, the the attempt to appeal to his vanity, and I think it really worked, didn't it, Michael? <laughs> I mean, there's a wonderful quote. He said, Trump said, and I won't attempt to do his voice, but that there were wall-to-wall people. They've never seen anything like it. Somebody said it was the greatest greeting ever given to any head of state from any country. Well, this is absolutely typical Trump. I mean, everywhere he goes now, they try to put on a show that appeals to his vanity. I mean, the, the tone was set on his very first visit abroad when he went to Saudi Arabia, and they put on this extraordinary kind of tribal dance for him and invited him uh, to take part in a great ceremony and lavish kind of gifts and whatever. And he loved it and uh, immediately declared that uh, he was a great friend of Saudi Arabia, probably giving the Saudis the um, green light to go ahead and uh, institute a boycott of Qatar, which wasn't a sensible thing to do. But uh, that is the way people deal with Trump because, frankly, he's not interested in serious type negotiations. That's not uh, what he's really up to. Uh, he wants to just make a show. And to some extent, he wants to uh, announce that America is, of course, their reliable ally. But most of all, he wants something that he can use in his electoral campaign back home. Mm. Uh, in terms of the huge turnout at the cricket stadium, uh, are those genuine supporters of Trump? Do those that love the nationalist Modi also love the nationalist Trump? Oh, there is certainly the perception that Trump hates Muslims enough. Uh, that he should be loved by Hindu extremists. And many of Mr. Modi's supporters in the state of Gujarat are are, uh, subscribers to the Hindu nationalist ideology. So they see him as a great friend to the Hindu nationalist. But I don't think Trump has any appreciation of what Hindu nationalism is, what its uh, ideological origins are. He says wonderful things, and he, t- he, he struck all the right notes. He praised Modi. He said America is a friend of India, and he said America would always stand by India. The following day, he obviously offered to negotiate in Kashmir, uh, which was a repudiation of that. But at the, in that stadium, he struck all the right notes. And for that, I think, in that, for that one hour that he was there... Uh, Modi would have seen that as a payoff mm. for all the investments he put in. I mean, in terms of Kashmir and, and the future of the citizenship law, uh, it's really exacerbated tensions with with Pakistan. I've just come back from there, and there was a real sense of ill will with India over, over Kashmir. And I, I wondered then how this plays internationally and whether Trump's involvement will make any difference. Well, India has always held that what happens in Kashmir is is an internal matter for India and at best a bilateral issue between Pakistan and India, and what Pakistan desperately wants to do because of the disparity between the two countries, India is immensely powerful compared to Pakistan. It wants to internationalize the matter. And everything, every wrong step that India makes, Pakistan seeks to magnify that 
and whip up support abroad. And this is part of an old process. Mm. Uh, finally, let's talk about what Trump ate <laughs> or didn't eat, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, he was given a vegetarian delicacy and they tried to modify it to accommodate his tastes. I mean, they made samosas filled with something other than the usual traditional filling of samosa, which outraged, outraged a lot of Indian chefs who said, this is, you know, you can't do this to our food. But he didn't touch any of the vegetarian dishes that were put before him, didn't even eat the chocolate cake that was put there, didn't eat a thing, which frankly is bad manners. I mean, he could have picked at something, but he just decided that wasn't the sort of food he liked, and he didn't touch it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that really was the height of bad manners, wasn't it, Kabil? Well, they, they, they filled the samosas with broccoli. And bro- yes, I given can't that, say they'd be so Trump tasty. never known <laughs> to eat a vegetable. <laughs> Filling samosas with broccoli was perhaps a very bad idea, and I think what happened there was he went to the he went to the ashram Mahatma Gandhi's ashram, and uh, the the food was laid out on the table. He was too busy looking at other things; he probably didn't have a chance to uh, pluck yes. at the food. Kapil Komaredi and Michael Binion there. We'll be back in just a moment, but first, here's Monocle's Marcus Hippie with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Georgina. Several European countries have announced their first coronavirus cases. Health officials in Switzerland, Austria and Croatia say they are linked to the growing outbreak in Italy. A Brazilian citizen who has just returned from Italy also has a coronavirus, which is the first recorded case in Latin America. The Democratic Party's presidential candidates have clashed in a heated television debate in South Carolina. The progressive Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders was the object of much of the hand-wringing, coming under repeated attack from centrist candidates and some members of the audience. And finally, the Monocle Minute reports that Portugal's national carrier has been caught up in a diplomatic spat with the Venezuelan authorities. Nicolas Maduro's government has banned TAP from flying into Caracas, citing a breach of public trust. For more on this story, head to monocle.com forward slash minute. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Georgina Godwin, here with Kapil Comareddy and Michael Binion. Here in the UK, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has vowed to overhaul the country's approach to foreign policy. Number 10 says insights from experts will challenge traditional Whitehall assumptions. Well, Michael, what do you think will actually happen in practice? And what are the traditional assumptions that need to be challenged? Well, I suppose the traditional assumption is that Britain is a military force uh, around the world and that it has an influence because of its armed forces and because of its traditional uh, uh, cultural as well as political influence through the uh, United Nations Security Council and that Britain, uh, although not a very big country geographically, still has a major role in global affairs. Mm. Well, of course, all those assumptions are up for questioning, uh, particularly the size of Britain's armed forces and whether they could or should play a role overseas in, in global conflicts, or at least as in peacekeeping forces. Uh, and really, it's to do with should Britain um, basically cut its budget to suit what the country can manage? I mean, its military as well as its foreign affairs budget. Uh, both have been subject to repeated cuts in recent years. And I think there needs to be a strategy behind, well, what exactly does Britain want to achieve in its foreign policy? What is in the national interest and how should we achieve it? Yes, but we talk about Britain. Do we mean Whitehall number 10 or do we mean Johnson's chief advisor, Dominic Cummings? I mean, we, there's been a huge amount written about how he wants to disrupt the traditional way of, 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 of thinking. Who's actually in charge of the government, but more importantly, the FCO? The, the I, foreign... I think this is very 
very much you can see a stamp of Dominic Cummings on this. You speak to young spads at the Tory HQ and they, they have a vision of this world. They feel that they've been held back by uh, the the dragons, at the, 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 the dinosaurs at the FCO and they feel that Britain is not uh, playing properly on the world stage and they want and Dominic Cummings has a radical vision to alter that he wants uh, Britain to become a force in the Commonwealth he feels that people are ready to embrace Britain in India in other Commonwealth countries and they feel this vision should be unleashed um, and they feel that the enemies of that vision are the old civil servant servants in Whitehall but there in that in that struggle between Dominic Cummings and uh, the civil servants I noticed that uh, they have actually included the, the the man in charge of this is not Dominic Cummings it's actually uh, a senior civil servant mm. so Dominic Cummings has been subordinated in that sense the um the UK's relationship with the US is also being redefined but again I mean I think the same questions can be asked we've seen the State Department completely hollowed out some really bizarre and contradictory foreign policy coming out of the US Who's Britain talking to in America? Goodness knows. I mean, they are talking officially to the State Department because that is the official link uh, between diplomats. But obviously, uh, talking to the White House is what matters much more. And uh, the difficulty there is that the advisers who have the ear of the president change all the time. So one doesn't quite know with whom to form a relationship. I mean, it's going to be a difficult relationship with the United States, no matter who's running policy in Britain, and whether it's Dominic Cummings who has the final word or or the prime minister or the foreign office, all these things need to be addressed. And in fact, some of the changes are important. I mean, the fact that the Commonwealth has been neglected for so long, it does need to be addressed again and looked at and see what value it can offer Britain. It is important that Britain should redefine some of its priorities. It is important that it has to think, well, what its armed services can do. Um, The problem about all this is that Dominic Cummings seems to think that he can run the thing himself, Uh, but the questions he's asking are not invalid questions. Mm -hmm. How drastically (laughs) can countries change their foreign policy? I mean, have any other countries done anything comparable to this plan? I can, I can. The example that comes to mind is of India. Uh, prior to the arrival of Modi in, in in the Prime Minister's office, India's foreign policy was quite lethargic. Uh, it had neglected uh, its friends. It had, um, you know, it had neglected neighbourhood com- neighbouring countries. What Modi did is he energised it, and. The old elite of India who ran the foreign policy was secular in their composition and Modi is not. And the new foreign policy and its priorities reflect the um, ideological leanings of the new elite. And I've seen that happen in India, the change happen, and the effects of that, the increased hostility with Pakistan, for instance, um, the insults hurled at Bangladesh next door. I've seen that happen in India. Mm. Uh, To your point, Michael, about this possibly making sense and how it might actually be good for countries to recalibrate their mm. policies every once in a while. I, I don't know if you've seen uh, 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 A.C. Grayling's new book. He says we may need to look at what democracy actually is, that we we perhaps need to re-examine processes that we've taken for granted for 300 years. Well, processes of how decisions are made, <clears throat> who makes them and uh, who, uh, what the repercussions will be. I mean, a strategic review is important. There have been one or two attempts, and they've mostly been pretty botched in Britain, particularly uh, military strategic review, because they haven't really thought through what's involved, and mostly they've been driven by the need to save money, uh, which isn't the best way of deciding 
deciding what your priorities are. I mean, I think all countries uh, do move backwards and forwards with their foreign policy. Just think of France. I mean, at one point, uh, goalism meant that France was equidistant between America and Russia. Well, that's not the case now. Uh, and uh, Macron has now repositioned himself to try to be a leader of Europe. Well, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't work. Foreign policy goes backwards and forwards according to who's in charge. Uh, and I think that is to be expected. Um, whether the processes of democracy need re-examining, well, uh, you know, that is an alarming statistic that just came out saying that in America, young people say they'd rather have a strong leader than maintain present democratic systems. Uh, and that was a majority of young people. They want a strong leader. Well, that is a really worrying trend if that's what young people are thinking. Mm. Uh, let's turn to Hong Kong finally, which hasn't had an easy ride recently. The, the protests about the future of the territory began last year. They've had a huge effect on tourism and on business. And now, of course, coronavirus. Uh, that's making the situation even worse. So as a response, the Hong Kong government has announced that it's giving all its permanent adult residents a cash gift of 10000 thousand Hong Kong dollars to help boost spending in the territory. Now, there'll be about 7 million people receiving the money. It would seem that you don't need to do anything to qualify. You've just got to live there. Yep. Uh, and this this has been brought about because uh, China's offering similar incentives to people to go to work. It's offering them free rides uh, and some cash. Uh, but the body blow uh, that coronavirus has landed upon China and Chinese economy and on Hong Kong is such that they're in uncharted waters and giving people money seems to be one way to stimulate them to get out and to actually revive the economy. Mm. And the appeal of this has always been there. This was obviously Milton Friedman's idea, you know, helicopter money dropping cash from the skies. And in 2015, um, a group of British economists wrote to the Chancellor asking him to do the same in Britain. So they're trying it out in Hong Kong because they're now in a position where they have to make this move. Mm, a sort of universal basic income. A sort of, you know, this could be the testing ground for that, yeah, actually. Yeah. I wonder if it is also an attempt to buy popularity and quell the protests, Michael. Well, yes, of course. I mean, uh, if somebody suddenly says, uh, you're getting all this cash from the government, you know, go out and buy the thing you've always had your eye on, people say, great, you know, what a good idea. I'm not sure that in the long run it's a terribly good idea because the money has to come from somewhere. And, of course, it will come from uh, vastly increasing the national debt. I mean, it will come from borrowing. Uh, and at some point, I mean, the gamble is that so much of the economy will be stimulated that that money will be paid back, that they'll earn all that extra cash uh, from you know, taxes and from the economy. I, I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, uh, I think it sounds slightly wacky economics. But in the short term, of course, it will be popular. Mm -hmm. So as coronavirus <coughs> begins to affect the rest of the world, I mean, might we all need financial help? What kind of a, a precedent does, does this set? Yeah, I think the experiment that is uh, that is taking place in Hong Kong might be a really good window into what will happen if you give people money. Will it actually reset the economy? Will it revive the economy? Uh, Neighbouring countries next to next to China, if, if, if the coronavirus spreads there, I don't think they have the mechanisms in place to look after their citizens uh, in the way that Hong Kong is able to at the moment. Um, and it is something we are in such un uncharted waters that what is happening in Hong Kong is something we must view with great attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, just looking around this table, the three of us are all freelancers. If we fall ill, we don't earn for two weeks. I mean, that's basically the bottom line, isn't it? Can you see the British government shelling out in such a case? Not for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I mean, I hope it won't be necessary in this country. I don't think uh, that the uh, incidence of coronavirus will ever reach the 
peak of uh, stopping the entire economy functioning or that uh, you know freelancers won't be able to find work. I mean, we do have national insurance. We have free health service. We have other things we can rely on. And even freelancers have some savings, one hopes. Uh, and I think um, it would be clearly a, a disaster if it really gets a grip. But in context, you know, flu takes a toll every single winter and people die from flu. And the fact that this is a new and different strain of flu and possibly more dangerous, we don't know. I mean, luckily, the death rates don't seem that high. Uh, and the hope is that the race to find a vaccine will prove effective within the next few months. And luckily, I think Britain may be able to protect itself from a widespread outbreak. So I think my own income may be not, not affected. <laughs> One hopes so. Or, or yours, indeed. I, I, I rather fear, I rather fear, I'm glad I'm here and there are these mechanisms in place to look after people who fall ill. Uh, but I, I think this is, this is not just... A, this is another strain of flu, but... I think we haven't seen the full face of it yet well, that's uh, and I, because it's happening in China and this is the trouble with uh, regimes that practice secrecy. We do not know the full horror and I think the full horror will become apparent yes. uh, in the coming days, in the coming months um, and until then we won't really know what's actually happening there. Mm. Kathal Kamaredi and Michael Binion, thank you. In a moment we'll hear Monocle's Hong Kong Bureau's thoughts on the coronavirus outbreak and its impact on everyday life in the city. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Georgina Godwin. Finally, today, as we've just discussed, coronavirus has brought much of Hong Kong to a standstill. But life and the economy must go on. The team at our bureau in Wan Chai sent us this dispatch. Spring arrived in Hong Kong over the weekend, the sun was out, the temperature was back above 20 Celsius and people were crowding the streets. A new Italian restaurant down the street was decorated with opening day flowers and inside, families were taking off their masks to tuck into brunch. Hong Kong is still in the middle of the coronavirus outbreak, but business and life does go on. Yes, everyone's taking sensible precautions, but the economy has not shut down and there are always fresh opportunities just around the corner for those who take panicky headlines with a pinch of salt and ignore the latest internet rumours about condoms and coffins running out. Today's news will be full of reports about the government's latest budget and the Finance Secretary's billions of fresh relief measures. Huge sums of money will be doled out this year to hard-hit families and small business owners, and rightly so. Hong Kong has a gigantic rainy day fund. Right now, these handouts will seem like small compensation, but this business-driven city will bounce back and its industrious residents will already be eyeing the recovery. Hearing from people who've experienced these kinds of downturns before can provide some useful perspective and a bit of inspiration. A veteran business owner explained recently how she moved to Hong Kong in the 1990s as an air stewardess and became her own boss during a three-year furlough from an American airline that had entered bankruptcy protection after September 11th. She never looked back, and two decades later, the business she built up survived SARS, and it will outlive the coronavirus. My thanks to our team at our Hong Kong bureau. And that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Marcus Hippie and researched by Yoling Goffin and Charlie German. Our studio managers were Louis Allen and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of Monocle's business show, The Entrepreneurs. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time, 10am in Los Angeles. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>